0: Welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business and economics. I'm your co-host, Taylor Scollin.
1: And I'm Sarah Britnica.
0: So, Sarah, we've heard a lot of talk lately about clean energy and the clean energy economy uh, with the federal budget that just happened a couple of weeks ago. That was obviously a centerpiece of it. And then prior to that, the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S., uh, last year was an uh, earthquake, I guess, for the the clean energy sector, but i don 't really know that much about what is actually going on in the space. I know that there 's a lot of money being spent and big big numbers being thrown around, but i don 't know that much about how it 's actually being spent, what sort of opportunities it's creating, and how Canada fits into what 's going on with the big climate push in the us.
1: Totally. I think you nailed it. I think there's a lot of really big numbers being thrown around. And I think today we're going to get to the bottom of where that money is going. I think there's a lot of headlines, right. Coming out of the the budget, right. Around just all these very ambitious types of investments. We're hearing more and more about really big players in the auto space, right. Like looking at Canada, glancing at Canada, kind of considering it as a location for potential, uh, factories um you know that'll create battery cells and be part of the green energy economy in that way so we're at a really interesting time where there's a lot of big players that are seemingly making uh decisions right where to set up shop what country they're going to put investment into and everyone wants to be that country canada's no exception so i think it's a very timely time to cover this topic
0: yeah, absolutely. And if this is going to be a growing part of our economy and a big part of our economy moving forward, I think we really do need to understand it better and the mechanics of how it works and how government fits into that. So we have uh, a great guest on this week who can walk us through all of that and talk about how Canada fits into what's going on both here and in the States when it comes to clean energy when it comes to the clean energy economy. Michael Bernstein is the executive director of Clean Prosperity, an economist by training and a climate policy expert. Michael, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be with you. So let's kick off by talking about the Inflation Reduction Act. Can you just walk us through what it is, what it does, and why Canadians should know about it?
2: Yeah, the Inflation Reduction Act represented a kind of earthquake in the clean energy movement around the globe. Um, It was a piece of legislation that was passed in the US last fall. Um, And although it's named the Inflation Reduction Act, it really is a misnomer because most of the bill is about providing subsidies for a series of clean energy technologies like solar, wind, batteries, carbon capture, et cetera, in order to accelerate investments in those technologies in the US. Um, And uh, as part of that also, there, there was a goal to bring the manufacturing of many of those technologies back to the US. It's kind of a competitive response to the threat of Uh, Chinese dominance over many of those supply chains. So it's a piece of legislation with very generous incentives. The original estimates of the bill were that it was going to cost the U.S. Treasury about $370 billion. Um, but But one of the features of that bill is actually many of the subsidies it provides are not capped. There's no limit on them. So there's been subsequent analysis by several firms showing the investments that the U.S. is going to uh, provide or the subsidies that they're going to dole out could exceed one trillion dollars over the next 10 years. So very, very significant piece of legislation.
1: What are some of the standout features of the IRA? Yeah, the standouts is just
2: how generous the funding is going to be for specific kinds of clean technology. So I'll give you an example. Um, Hydrogen fuel. This is going to be hydrogen is going to be a a key part of decarbonizing certain kinds of supply chains because um, even fertilizer today uses millions and millions of tons of hydrogen from fossil fuels. We need cleaner ways to produce that hydrogen from renewable energy or other similar situations. The Inflation Reduction Act is going to offer three U.S. dollars for every kilogram of hydrogen produced with renewable energy to as many hydrogen facilities as want to produce it, um, which is a staggering figure because the cost of green hydrogen may uh, end up being less than $3 a kilogram. So just the subsidy alone could end up being profitable. It could, we could be in a situation where folks are producing green hydrogen without a customer perhaps in the future. So that is the kind of incentive that it provides. And it, while that's a particularly generous example, there are similar kinds of subsidies in the forms of production tax credits is, is the actual mechanism that's used. And those are also offered for solar power, for wind, uh, for batteries, for electric vehicles, um, for carbon capture, and a series of other important technologies that are gonna be needed in the low carbon economy. And do Canadian companies, clean energy producers,
0: do they stand to benefit from this as well? Or is this strictly limited to American businesses?
2: It actually depends on the provision. So you have a series of different production tax credits. There are one or two examples, which I'll go into in in one minute, of places where this will represent an important opportunity for Canada and Canadian firms. And yet there's other areas of the bill where I think the the legislation really presents a threat to Canadian businesses and Canadian low carbon economy as a whole. Um, so to unpack that a little bit, let's start with the opportunities. I think one of the most promising ones is really in the electric vehicle supply chain uh, the, of course, the Canadian auto sector today, the manufacturing, the manufacturing of vehicles, that is, is quite integrated into the US supply chains as well. Um, And this U.S. bill does provide an incentive of $3,750 per vehicle that consumers can access when they buy an electric vehicle. But here's the key catch and the part that could represent an opportunity for Canada. That $3,750 U.S. is only going to be provided if the battery components are made in North America. And so that is an area where Canada could very significantly benefit. And we're already seeing interest and investments being announced in the electric vehicle battery supply chain in Canada. Um, A similar area of opportunity is upstream from the battery manufacturing and what's called critical minerals. Uh, These are minerals like lithium, nickel, cobalt, copper that are gonna be needed to produce batteries and canada has is blessed with a lot of those key minerals and there is a additional 3750 dollars that ev purchasers can access if the minerals that went into those batteries were produced in either the us or a free trade agreement country Mm -hmm. and so canada could be a could and likely will be a player in that part of the supply chain and the incentives are gonna induce investment in Canada. So that's the good news. Um, The less good news is that the incentives being provided to set up manufacturing facilities and to uh, purchase fuels like hydrogen in the US are staggering amounts of money. And so it is going to be very difficult for Canada to compete for investments in carbon capture equipment, direct air capture facilities, uh, hydrogen plants, as we were talking about, or even the kinds of industrial products like cement, steel, chemicals that may be produced using the clean electricity and clean fuels that are subsidized by by this U.S. bill. So the bottom line for Canada is we could see investments that might otherwise come here and support Canadian jobs and and, uh, contribute to Canadian GDP actually flowing south of the border. And perhaps even some companies that are set up here moving to the U.S. So given that, what do you think would be an appropriate
0: response from a policy perspective? You know, some people have been saying, okay, well, we just need to copy the IRA, right? Just do our own ira and then i read in one of your reports clean prosperity's reports that sort of this is not possible right there's we can't bring to bear the same amount of money that the americans can we need our own sort of thinking around this that's made tailored for canada uh what would that look like what would a successful canadian response to this look like
2: yeah i often think of this story of david and goliath when i think about what canada should do And I think one of the instructive learnings from that story is that David didn't just copy Goliath's strategy, right? He thought about what is it that he could do, given his unique set of assets and abilities, to actually win the battle. Um, So I think there's parallels here for Canada in that we have to use what we have here already to our advantage, noting, um, by the way, that this isn't all necessarily a zero-sum game. So I I do want to say before we go further that, of course, there is massive opportunities in the clean energy economy. It's the greatest opportunity of this century. Um, And so there are going to be ways in which Canada and the U.S. can cooperate for mutual benefit. But as it pertains to what Canada should do to get its share of the economic pie here, I think that the starting point for that is to use the carbon pricing system that we already have in the books in Canada and which the US, of course, at least at the federal level, does not have. Because today, the pricing system for heavy industry in Canada, so think about you know, steel mills and cement kilns and uh, oil refineries, the carbon pricing system that they face is actually a mix of two different incentives. The first part is the part most people know about, okay? If you if you burn fossil fuels and you emit into the air, you have to pay a fee. But that, it turns out that, for reasons we can discuss later if you want, industrial facilities only pay for about 20% of their emissions. They would pay a carbon fee. The other 80% represents an opportunity for them to generate credits that they can actually sell to other emitters if they decarbonize if they remove those emissions. And that is the key part of, or what could be the key part of a Canadian response. Because if we give companies an assurance that when they set, when they generate credits by say, installing a carbon, a piece of carbon capture equipment at their facility, if they know that they are going to be able to sell those credits to another emitter for a good price, then that will provide the incentive they need in many, many cases to actually go ahead and put the 500 million or a billion dollars on the table to decarbonize their facility. This is what I'm describing as a policy known as carbon contracts for difference. And in the wonky policy world, this is a very in vogue term right now. It was a term that was invoked, actually, in the budget that just uh, passed the 2023 Canadian budget, because that can make up a key part of the response. And that's the first piece. I'll mention one other thing as as it pertains to where we can compete, and that is to be strategic about what sectors we think Canada really is in a strong position to compete with the U.S. on. Um, So... Well, one area where we have natural advantages is around clean electricity. Um, we have a much higher share of clean electricity than the U.S. does. We're at about eighty-three percent, whereas the U.S. is about thirty at about thirty-eight percent. The reverse. Um, we also, of course, have um, we are blessed with really abundant pore space to put carbon under the under the surface in specific parts of our country. Uh, we have a lot of biomass from our forests that we can use to produce biofuels. So when you add up some of Canada's specific characteristics, you can see places where we could make bets on particular technologies, not all of the technologies in the Inflation Reduction Act, but some specific ones where it may be in our benefit to also provide production tax credits like the U.S. has.
1: I'm wondering if we could take a step back for a second to talk about the carbon kind of pricing market and the how that contributes to working towards net zero goals. Like, can you just explain how the market works for us and the goals
2: of it? Yeah, yeah, sure. And so so carbon pricing, I mean, the carbon price that you and I would be most directly familiar with is the fact that when we go to the gas pump, we are paying A higher price on gasoline and we're paying a higher price on home heating um, because those today come from fossil fuels that are putting greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So this year it's $65 per ton carbon price in Canada and that represents about 14 cents a liter at the gas pumps Um, and the, the calculation on home heating is a little more complex than that. But that's the system that we have as consumers and individuals. The key thing here as we think about the Canadian economy and heavy industry is that they actually have a different carbon pricing system from those that you and I face, which is, make, which is what presents a bit of complexity but also an opportunity. Because when they pay their carbon tax bill, they pay a carbon tax, they actually pay out only on about 20% of their emissions. It depends on the sector, it depends on the province. But a good approximation is about 20 percent of their emissions um, but the thing is that if they actually invest in decarbonizing their facility you know if you had a um let's say a cement kiln that was emitting a million tons a year and they said you know what? we're gonna we're gonna install carbon capture equipment which is basically going to capture the carbon dioxide in the flu stack before it gets out into the atmosphere, and then we're going to bury it underground. What would happen is they would no longer have to pay the tax on 20% of those emissions. But for the other 80% of those emissions, now let's call it 800,000 tons in that example, where they're emitting a million tons a year. So 80% or 800,000 tons, the government is going to say, um, here are some credits To recognize that you are no longer emitting those 800,000 tons. And those credits can be used by either you or any other facility to avoid paying the carbon price in the future. So what is that cement kiln going to go out and do? It's probably going to take those credits they just got from the government and going to go to the oil refinery next door and say, hey, Instead of paying the carbon price, which is $65 a ton today, what if I sell you these credits for $60 a ton? You save $5 a ton on what you would have had to pay, and I get $60 a ton uh, as a cement kiln. And that is the key incentive that I think the government can use to help respond to the inflation reduction math has never been my strong suit, but I'm trying to kind of do this
0: in my head as we talk here. Is there, how lucrative is that? Can you, you know, if the decision is between, you mentioned companies going south to take advantage of some of these incentives and subsidies in the IRA, does that make up for that, you know, the gap there by generating these credits and then selling them on
2: to other uh, emitters? Yeah, the short answer is it, it, It can make up all or most of the gap in most sectors. Mm -hmm. It is going to depend on the technology. But let me give you a specific example. Let's go back to our hydrogen example for a second. Now, I talked about how the U.S. was incentivizing renewable hydrogen at $3 a kilogram. It's also incentivizing what's called blue hydrogen or fossil fuel-based hydrogen where you capture the emissions with carbon capture equipment. So let's we'll call that blue hydrogen. So for blue hydrogen, the U.S. is giving a dollar U.S. per kilogram for every kilogram produced. And Canada announced an investment tax credit for, hi, for the same kind of hydrogen. And it said, you know what? We'll give emitters or, or facilities, I should say, a 30% tax credit on their investments. So if you set up a new facility, you spend a billion dollars, we'll give you a 30% tax credit, let's call it $300 million. That sounds great, but when you do the math and you compare apples to apples, that amounts to two cents a kilogram, okay? Okay. Whereas the US is producing, is giving uh, that same facility a dollar. And a typical facility is gonna produce about 400 million kilograms a year. So the bottom line is we are not even close, okay? We're providing less than a 10th of the support and some and, and a facility would be in a position to give up hundreds of millions of dollars per year to set up in Alberta instead of Alabama. That's the situation today with now to get to the question you asked, if the government were to guarantee the credits from installing the carbon capture equipment, it depends a little bit on the price they give. But just uh, the the calculations we've done suggest that would be worth between 75 and 90 cents a kilogram. So it's gonna close Mm -hmm. the vast majority of the gap. And that's what we need, right? Is that we need to be in the same ballpark so that other assets Canada has, whether it's our skilled workforce, whether it's our clean electricity, whether it's provincial incentives, can close any remaining gap. But when you're offering two cents a kilogram and your competitor's offering a dollar, you're not even in the conversation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The, the follow-up on this uh, is clear enough. Is Did they do that in the federal budget? Did we get these contracts of
2: difference well, at your time? Uh, l- they took a step in that direction. We got a mention of the carbon contracts for difference. Uh, we didn't get the full program. The, the finance minister said she is going to consult on a broad-based program of contracts for difference. And, You know, full disclosure, that's something that my organization worked really hard to get into the budget. So we were really pleased to at least see a nod to it and the fact that that is something they are likely to pursue in the coming months. And we also got uh, more details about another signature program of the Canadian government that was announced actually in the previous fall economic statement called the Canada Growth Fund. Um, And this is a new $15 billion fund that is being set up to provide concessionary financing, whether that's uh, favorable interest rate loans, whether that be equity investments or other tools into low carbon projects in Canada. And the budget said that the carbon contracts for difference mechanism would be one of the tools that that uh, fund will use. So we got a step in the right direction. We got an indication the government's interested in using this tool but we don't yet have all the details.
0: And overall, what was your assessment of the initiatives that they did include beyond that? Is that was it an appropriate response to the IRA or you know, where do we fall on that spectrum of having the policies in place to compete?
2: So I'd say we, ha- we took some really important steps forward in the budget, um, but we have not gone far enough. And the challenge here, and and I'll explain exactly why I say that in a minute, but I think maybe a helpful analogy here would be um, the one I'm actually fond of using is actually with airlines. The situation we have today is that we have Canadian, you know, the Canadian government was like an airline. Essentially, what they're doing is they're upgraded, they've upgraded some of the passengers with others. They've given them some free meals, they've given them some extra legroom. But their competitor airline is just sending everybody right to first class as soon as you buy the ticket, right? So the problem isn't really with the Canadian government that they're not being generous, that they haven't provided upgrades or aren't trying to do things for the customers. The problem is their competitor is just so incredibly generous that it is hard to know how you compete with that. So to get to the specifics, so to get the specifics of what the Canadian government did, is they announced, depending on how you count it, three to four new investment tax credits applying to some of these key clean technologies we've been discussing. So you have a new investment tax credit for electricity, which is going to be 15% of the CapEx on renewable electricity. You have a new investment tax credit for clean tech manufacturing, which could be up to 30% of the capital expenditure on new uh, facilities produce solar panels or to produce clean hydrogen. Um, we have another tax credit for, for, uh, the suppliers of renewable energy, another one for carbon capture and storage, and, uh, actually a fifth one, uh, which would pr- was previously announced, but which we got more details on in the budget around hydrogen. Uh, I was describing that earlier when I talked about the two cents per kilogram. So those are all helpful, right? All of those tax credits provide some economic signal to firms and investors to try to invest in Canada. But they're, for the most part, just not as generous as the U.S. incentives. So I think Canada is going to need to add some additional layers to the package of policies it's offering. It's got the investment tax credits. It's got the carbon pricing system. But as I talked about, it needs to strengthen that through contracts for difference. And then I think it needs to also consider adding some production tax credits into the mix because production tax credits are typically just going to be much more valuable than than investment tax credits. Investment tax credits are one time provided at the beginning, but production tax credits are ongoing for, I mean, in the case of the U.S., at least 10 years. So they typically are much more generous.
1: A lot of the headlines that we're seeing um, around the clean energy transition focus on, like, factories and, like, manufacturing hubs and, like, where they're being set up, where money is going. And that seems like a really clear competition that might, like, emerge between the U.S. and Canada. Um, And I I was reading uh, last week that, you know, Foxconn um, is maybe considering, you know, moving, you know, building a plant in, in Canada. Canadian officials feel pretty good about it. I wonder if you could explain to us, like how do those conversations happen? And do we have the right incentives and subsidies worked into like the budget or different policies, right? To make this like an attractive destination for a factory of this type.
2: Yeah. So today we, I would say Canada has the ability to attract individual facilities like the Foxconn one you mentioned. Um, There's been other very significant announcements recently of some uh, battery manufacturing facilities. Volkswagen just announced one, for example, in the last few weeks in Canada. Um, And we're able to attract those individual facilities because what the Canadian government is doing is it's offering bespoke funding or specific tailored deals for those specific firms. But what Canada ought to do in my view, is to provide a kind of systematic set of incentives that attract capital across the entire clean tech ecosystem and send a signal to all prospective investors in Canada that Canada is open for business and there's, there's incentives that are on par with what the U.S. is offering so that we can really get our, our share or ideally an outsized share of the economic opportunity involved
1: can we get into a, a little bit of the details around like what that could look like I don't know if listeners know and I don't think I know right like the the amounts that are at play here it seems like when um you know a plant is is when a decision is made to like open a plant it ends up being that like one you know some level of government has subsidized a massive amount of that plan like they effectively kind of pay for most of it so can you kind of walk us through the the the, I guess the details of what that looks like, and maybe at the end of it, like whether the investments are worth it in your view, considering like the sizable amount that has to go towards these projects to attract companies.
2: Yeah, it's a great question. So um, we're for some of these really large deals, um, like this Volkswagen facility that was announced, where they're going to produce batteries for electric vehicles. Um, they the government actually hasn't announced the total yet but the speculation is that it's in the billions of dollars for that one facility in fact some speculation suggests it could be up to 15 billion dollars for that facility which is really uh, a shocking amount and and it may not be that high we don't yet know but it is certainly in the billions this is a combination of federal and provincial funding i should say so this facility will be located uh, in the greater toronto area so the ontario government is uh, chipping in for that. Uh, But we are talking about really large amounts of money. And that is one of the reasons why I would suggest that what the federal government ought to be doing is thinking about where are their areas of policy where they can incentivize and attract some of these deals without having to outlay these kinds of uh, sums of money. Because it is Still, I think an open question whether those investments, um, you know, are, are worth the dollars being spent. And when you, when you calculate the dollars per job created, because you're probably talking about, uh, you know, two to 3,000 workers in a, in a facility like on the scale of the Volkswagen facility, you know, you could never justify the investment in those terms. It, it comes up to like I haven't run the numbers recently, but it's a it's a staggering amount per worker. So you'd only be able to justify that if you said to yourself, this is an anchor investment for a broader hub of activity that we need to attract to Canada at this time, because all of the major, in that particular case, all of the major automakers and all of the battery supply mm-hmm. chain mm-hmm. providers are making decisions this year and over the next couple of years on facilities that are going to last 20 or 30 years. And so those supply chains are getting formed now and we are gonna provide that money in order to, to um, develop the broader economy around that sector that we think we need to have located in Canada. So it really is uh, a huge amount of money. But I, I do wanna mention one other point that your question makes me think of, which is that you know, as much as the amount of money I, um, that is being offered by each jurisdiction is important. It is also really important how that money is being offered. And one of the things that I, I didn't quite explicitly say about the U.S., but I think is really critical, is that there is upfront certainty for investors about how much money they are going to receive from the U.S. federal government when they invest in a new facility. So they know, as long as they meet basic criteria, to come back to that hydrogen example, it is $3 per kilogram for renewable hydrogen. In Canada, there are a lot lot of pools of funding we've announced. We now have this investment tax credit. That part is clear. We know that, two cents a kilogram case of fossil fuel-based hydrogen with carbon capture. But what we don't know, what facilities don't know, investors don't know, is, okay, there's a $15 billion fund $15 billion in money in the Canada Growth Fund. There's $40 billion, uh, $20 billion of which is for clean uh, energy in the Canada Infrastructure Bank. There's an $8 billion pool of money for grants in this net zero accelerator fund. That's a lot of money. And actually on a per capita basis with the US, it's actually on par with maybe what the US might spend. But who knows who's going to get that money? If you're an investor today and you're thinking, well, should I locate in Alabama or Alberta, as I was saying earlier, you say, well, I know what I'm going to get in Alabama, but I and uh, I have no clue what I'm going to get in Canada. And do I want to invest a year or more hiring a bunch of lobbyists and and creating, you know, going through the engineering studies, et cetera, to find out what I'm going to get in Canada when it could be zero or not? So that is that, that issue of bankability, we call it, or upfront certainty, is really, really important when you're looking at attracting firms. And so that is something I really would like to see Canada move towards is, is that the funding becomes clearer, more certain, and more systematic upfront, or more bankable in short. That kind of leads
0: to another question about our capacity to actually do this, not just at a public sector level to actually deploy the funding, but in terms of labor, in terms of supply chains, do we actually have the capability to do this sort of build out uh, or are there things that have to be put in place before it makes sense?
2: Yeah, we don't have the capability today and it is a real concern and something that the that Canada is going to need to address both at the federal and the provincial level. So we already know today that there are uh, there is a shortage uh, on the scale of hundreds of thousands of workers in the construction industry, and we also know that in order to build the clean economy, um, it is going to require millions or is uh, of, new, of new jobs in that sector. By one one recent estimate I saw was two and a half million new clean energy jobs by 2050. So that leaves a huge gap and the gap cuts across all sorts of different um, skills and, and professions. We're talking everything from engineers and boiler makers to drivers of electric vehicles, to heat pump installers. And it's going to be spread across all parts of Canada in every community. So we have a, a really big challenge in training and uh, and or attracting to Canada the kind of talent that's going to be required to make good on the opportunities that are in front of us. And it does actually relate to housing, to come back to the point you just mentioned, because with the cost of housing becoming um, uh, so problematic in Canada and, and folks seeing that it's unaffordable to live in urban centers of Canada, it does present a challenge to attract workers into those areas uh, for for clean energy as well. So uh, really a big issue. I think it's one that the federal government is aware of, but not an easy problem to solve because it costs a lot of money to train workers in, in, in these new skills. Yeah, is the mismatch in the labor market? Is, do you
0: think that's the biggest obstacle right now to getting this done?
2: It's, a, it's, it's one of the biggest ones. I mean, there's so many big obstacles that it's hard to choose only that, but I'd say it's a, a you know, it, it's probably the, I think it's probably the biggest obstacle relative to the attention it's received, which is to say that most organizations who work on climate policy or who look to attract more investment to Canada and clean energy are not actually talking enough about this uh, labor shortage. But there certainly are others, uh, including you know regulation and permitting issues, and um, you know other kinds of bottlenecks around transmission grids, etc. That we're gonna we're gonna face uh, going forward.
1: It's interesting because this clean energy transition has so quickly and like rightfully so like turned into a conversation about like business, like it is an economy like in and of itself of, you know, of that has its own different players, its own, you know, unique kind of labor force with different types of skills that you almost like lose sight of the bigger picture. And so I'm wondering if um, we could talk a little bit about like what the specific like goals are too. It's like, we're making these kind of these crazy investments. Like part of it is to get more, I guess, like production capacity, like in Canada, in North America for these types of clean um, technologies. But like, what's the bigger goal that like all of this is is working towards?
2: I think there's at least three really critical goals that we're trying to achieve, um, arguably more than that. But, but the ones that pop to mind for me are, yes, for sure, the climate goals are a key part of this. So we, we know that um, we have a ton of work to do to avoid unsafe levels of warming for the planet going forward. And that's typically represented by the fact that we need to get to a point in our economy where we are no longer emitting any greenhouse gases into the atmosphere by 2050. Um, That's the net zero goal that you referred to earlier. Um, And that's a incredibly daunting challenge when you think about the fact that most infrastructure uh, lasts longer than 27 years and we only have 27 years left. So we're, we have a huge challenge there and that, and and and, and that, is, that is certainly one of the driving forces here. But a second one is that there's a massive economic opportunity in front of us. We are remaking uh, the global energy system in the process of reaching those climate goals. And the energy is about an $80 trillion business around the world. It is a massive economic driver of uh, activity of GDP, investment of jobs. And so there are huge opportunities for Canada here to um, leverage some of its natural advantages. We're in a very fortunate position uh, relative to other global competitors, notwithstanding things like the Inflation Reduction Act, um, to attract um, to attract new sectors, like uh, we're going to need to build out a whole sector, just to give you one example, around capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and burying it back Mm -hmm. underground. Um, This is going to be an industry, it's called carbon dioxide removal, that is going to be two to three times the size of today's global oil and gas industry, possibly bigger. It is going to be a huge industry. It doesn't exist yet today. But it is going to have to get built out in the next uh, two and a half, three decades, and so there are there are you know tens of billions of dollars, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jobs for Canada to attract in that sector. That's just one example. There's many others. So I think there's an economic opportunity here. Secondly, and, and the third thing that I think is um is is a, is a key national objective is that we have an issue around energy security and geopolitics that um, which is being manifested today in the need to get off Russian oil and gas. But the reality is that many of the fossil fuels that are produced globally today come from jurisdictions that are a lot less friendly than Canada. Um, And that often are are run by dictators who do some pretty nasty things. And so there is a geopolitical imperative, I think, to achieve energy independence for Canada and its allies. Um, And in the process, actually, and this is, I think, one of the motivations for the Inflation Reduction Act as well, create a uh, or reduce the economic dependence on China as well. So there's all these geopolitical concerns to help build a more stable, uh, safe kind of Western alliance. So, and, and that is a, a third objective. And of course we need to do all of those things while making sure that energy remains affordable for Canadians who are already dealing with rising costs in many areas. So, um, this is a, um, as you can see a massive and complicated undertaking that also represents some pretty major opportunities.
0: I think it would be good to stay on the opportunities for a moment because we do have you know plenty of people who who listen to this who are entrepreneurs or are in business themselves, and I know that your your job is to provide policy advice and not advice on business models. But you know you see where the money is going and where policymakers are focusing their attention. So I'm curious if you have any thoughts on you know what are the specific opportunities and sectors that you think people in business should be paying more attention to, where you think there is going to be more support from different levels of government to get stuff built.
2: So I think there, as you say, there are going to be opportunities all across the economy, but maybe I can pick out a few that represent areas where I think Canada is in a particularly strong position to gain an outsized share of the economic potential Um, One would be the area I mentioned previously around carbon dioxide removal. I think we are going to need to remove far more carbon from the atmosphere than most people appreciate, um, because the reality is that even if we meet the climate targets that the federal government has set out, Canada will have already exceeded its share of the remaining greenhouse gas emissions that we can put in the atmosphere, probably by 2031 or 2032. Like we're all, we're basically there. So we have to, we just have a massive industry there. And I think Canada can be a really key player. I think another one um, is in uh, low carbon materials. So creating chemicals um, and low carbon steel and cement, um, using some of the natural feedstocks that we have in Canada, whether that be the carbon we're pulling out of the atmosphere whether that's um, non-combustion chemical uses of the bitumen uh, that we have, of course, in Alberta and Saskatchewan, parts of BC. Um, so I think that is another really important area. Uh, Canada is also blessed with a lot of uh, land and a lot of biomass. So I think the opportunities in uh, to use to create and use biofuels in in areas like sustainable aviation fuel, for example. Um, Will be a very promising area of activity. Um, so and, and hydrogen too, which we were talking about earlier. You know, we really do have the expertise in Canada around how to how to create low carbon fuels, uh, and we have a lot of uh, feedstocks, uh, natural gas feedstocks that can be used as the as the trigger point to launch the industry that will then transition into probably renewable based hydrogen. So those are a few areas, but you know we have amazing canadian entrepreneurs doing things all across the economy that i'm constantly amazed by and so that is really i'd say just the tip of the iceberg on where there are opportunities for for canada i think that's a great place to leave it on a on a positive note it's a big challenge but also a
0: big (laughs) opportunity and uh, hopefully some of our smart listeners can uh, take that away and build something good for themselves and good for the rest of us as well. It'd be good to see. So thank you, Michael, for coming on and walking us through that. Really appreciate it. That was fascinating. Thanks a lot. Great to talk to you. Well, so there was another conversation around climate that makes me wonder if we're ever really going to get our, our hands around this issue. Um, but I did appreciate that Michael had some uh, ideas for how, you know, we could have our own advantage based on characteristics unique to Canada compared to what the U.S. is doing which I think is becoming increasingly important as they pour more and more money into this sector if we want to avoid uh you know losing any sort of edge we have here
1: yeah for once a positive conversation or a spit on the topic which I I definitely appreciate it I also think that for me personally um it's so easy to kind of lose sight of what the bigger goals are, which I appreciate him kind of reiterating around, like, this is around a transition and like, the entire energy economy. This is about, like, shifting geopolitical tensions and energy sources. And, like, because oftentimes, like, I hear about these, like, factory announcements and these, like, individual, like, credits and incentives. But it's one of those things, too, um, where it is helpful to kind of get someone to reiterate like, okay, these are the goals that we're working towards. This is why we're all putting these measures in place. But like, one thing I will say is like, talk about having the upper hand for these companies that have anything to do with this clean energy economy transition, because they just have like governments basically like on their knees trying to get them to like Pilled factories and like paying oh for these types of investments. Like, it makes me want to go into the clean like energy it. business. A hundred percent immediately. That was my takeaway. We're in the yeah. wrong business.
0: Yeah. Well, I tried to get him to you know tell me what I should go do, but mm. <laughs> you had some good ideas. They all seem beyond me. But uh, yeah.
1: for some no, no, more no, scientifically Michael, what minded I people.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what about for people who have no real hard skills? Then what should we do? Uh, We Uh, all know that uh, when you
1: were asking about the entrepreneurs that listen to
0: the podcast, (laughs) it was really just. Oh, it's for our audience. (laughs) 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 Yes, exactly. And I guess the other thing that I thought was interesting that we talked about was the contrast of the two different approaches to this between having a sort of system wide incentive that companies can. Tap into, which seems to be what the the American approach is, and the approach that we've taken so far of you know striking these deals, one-off deals with different companies, um, and I guess kind of the disadvantages of of doing it that way. You know, like I understand the theory behind it of oh, we're going to have Volkswagen build their battery plant here, and that's going to foster a bigger sector that grows around it, um, but that doesn't seem to be proven. Whereas, you know, we have an example in the States of a policy where anyone who wants to do this at the price that we set can come in and do it, uh, which, you know, is expensive, but I would think would get the job done faster than trying to do these one-off agreements with different companies.
1: Yeah, it's a difficult place to be in because if you look at Like if you look at what's happened in the last year, right, it's become like the budget was kind of a response, like as you pointed out, to the Inflation Reduction Act and the investments within that. And so suddenly it's become a bit of like a race. But what is interesting to think about is how like this is an economy that is like not really – built around demand just yet. It's like the first instance, right. Where you're just kind of making all these investments with like the hopes. Like I think Michael gave the investor, the example of the, um, of kind of the, the, the hydrogen. Um, I think it was like a subsidy, how effectively, right. It could create a system in the, um, in the United States where like hydrogen doesn't like need a customer to be profitable. So like a lot of interesting things happen, I guess, when that's the case and overall just a lot of, uh, uncertainty and something I'm very interested in staying close to as it evolves. Yeah.
0: I do wonder about that particular policy. Like what happens if you're just paying people to produce this thing that no one actually needs to buy? I don't know. Maybe it is worth it. Like maybe you do get some sort of uh, benefit out of it from a climate perspective or environmental perspective. But if there's no customer, then does it really make sense? I don't know. I I have a lot of questions. I'm
1: sure... I'm sure it's more complicated than that, but like in my simplified view, right, it creates the, what country was it? It creates like the, what was it? Like the cobra problem. I believe that there was some African or like Asian nation, which was like, we're going to give like a bounty to like the cobras that you kill and like bring to us. And then people started breeding cobras, which is a little bit different, obviously. Is that too, real? I but, haven't like, heard of this. <laughs> it's probably such a bad comparison, but it's like, it is It it's, it is interesting too, right? How some of these, um, have some of these like incentives, right? Like what happens when you put this high price on carbon or sorry, on hydrogen, but there really is no demand for it? Like, do you just have firms that kind of set up shop and are pumping out hydrogen without buyers and what are the what are the effects of it?
0: Interesting. Maybe just a lot of hydrogen.
1: A lot of hydrogen. <laughs> Much more than we'll ever need, which could be a good yes. thing. We'll see. I think that's we a good place there? to leave it. I think so. Okay,
0: well, this has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. I'm Taylor Scollin. You can follow me on Twitter at Taylor Scollin.
1: I'm Sarah Britnica. You can follow me on Twitter at Sarah Britnica.
0: And make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you enjoyed this episode. You can do that by searching and following Free Lunch by the Peak wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to our daily newsletter as well. You can get that at readthepeak.com. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening.